0: You're listening to another New Hope Chapel
1: Podcast. Podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today, we'll be hearing from Carl Nebbia, a member of our teaching team, as he continues our series called The Master. As I start uh, this morning, I wanted to mention that uh, I spent a good part of this past week uh, in Las Vegas at the... uh, Consumer Electronics Show. Some of you have seen ads and newspaper, radio reports, and so on on that. And at this show, they have all the latest gadgets that you'd ever want to have. They have televisions that are bigger than any wall you have in your home. (laughs) Uh, Some of the televisions now are curved. Some of them are flexible, so they can bend in and out. They have all the laptops, cell phones... Uh, tablets that you'd ever uh, possibly want. Uh, They've now moved on, I don't know if you know this, but they've moved on beyond high-definition television, and now they're into something called 4K and 8K, which is multiples of the definition of high-definition. This stuff is so highly defined that you can see all the nose hairs in the actor's nose, if that that makes you want to watch television anymore. (laughs) But you can, you can. They had um, they had electronic onesies for those of you who have young children where in this suit that the child wears, it tells the parent when the child rolls over. Uh, it, it keeps track of heartbeat, respiration. Uh, I think has something to do with moisture content uh, to report on that. <laughs> so it does all these nifty things. They even had a, a setup where you could have your little child trained by Grover, uh, where they've got a pad with a set of blocks, standard, looks like standard child's blocks, where the kid plays with the blocks, and Grover on the TV screen talks to them about what they're doing. So when they turn up the A, Grover reads out A, and the kid's supposed to learn, okay, that's an A, Grover told me it's an A. And one lady was there while I was looking at this, and she was putting them all up in a row, and Grover actually said, you look like you're building the Great Wall of China. Now, I don't really know whether you want to turn your children over to be trained by Grover, <laughs> who, to be honest, is not a real person, if you don't know that. Okay. Not real. But they had you know fancy new cars with all the, the gadgets in, the, in them that you could want so that you never have to pay attention to the road again, you know. All this kind of stuff, but the reality is about Vegas is it is still a dark place for all the fancy the glamour and the glisten and the flashing lights and stuff. it still is essentially a dark place. Most of what goes on in Vegas probably doesn't really stay in Vegas, but it goes on it goes on at night in Vegas, and they 've made a way for gambling, for instance, to go on 24 hours a day. But they do it by bringing it indoors and closing you in so it's really very, very dark. It's like being there at night. You can't tell when it's day, when it's night. You just keep playing. So that's the nature of Las Vegas. It's a very, very dark place. And that brings me to the beginning of what I'm going to talk about uh, today from John chapter 3. So uh, if you have Bibles, you can pull them out. If we can, well, I have the thing, don't I? So, I'm going to start with John chapter 3, and it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. So, as we begin today, I want you to pray with me, and I would ask you, if you could, I don't usually do this, but Justin's taught me a lot about doing this. If you could envision yourself, as you close your eyes and as you pray, envision yourself walking through the back streets and alleys of Jerusalem in the middle of the night. With the only light being the stars, possibly the moon, uh, possibly some uh, small fires along the way. But walking through this labyrinth of back streets, alleyways, to get to a goal, Uh, as you're walking along, possibly you trip over a number of unseen obstacles. Uh, You hear a dog barking loudly over the wall right beside you. But you continue on this path down these dark alleys to a place that you obviously uh, chose ahead of time, as Nicodemus did. He understood where Jesus was. And you follow that path through the variety of turns to a darkened doorway. You follow that course because you've come to the conclusion that you have to talk to Jesus directly. You know that the other members of your group, the Sanhedrin, have declared him to be dangerous, to be a heretic, one who heals contrary to the law and casts out demons by the devil himself. But you still need, you still need to talk to him. Father, we pray this morning. We come to you like Nicodemus. seeking the truth and seeking relief from fear and doubt and shame, Lord, we come to you today having walked in darkness, having looked for other sources for our security, for our justification, and we come to you today to ask some questions, to understand, to hear what wisdom you might have, to help us know ourselves better, but also to find out what the truth is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Okay, that was a rough start. I'm sorry. That's the place where Nicodemus was. He came to Jesus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin member of the ruling class of teachers, a Pharisee. And he came to Jesus in the dark. He had to have known where Jesus was staying uh, to have gotten there. And if you've ever been in one of these kind of old country cities, uh, Middle Eastern cities, uh, in the dark when there's no lights on, it is really dark. I mean, really dark. There's nothing guiding your way. There's... If you don't know where you're going, you're never going to get there. So so Nicodemus goes to find Jesus to talk to him, and he goes uh, with a few things in mind. First of all, I believe he goes in fear. The reason he's going at night is he's afraid. The people that he worked with day in and day out had already declared Jesus to be a heretic. They were plotting ways to get at him. And Nicodemus must have been going in the dark in order to hide himself. Now, we have a saying in our family that nothing good happens after midnight. So if you have any teenagers and they want to do something that happens after midnight, in our home, it was a no-no. After midnight, nothing else good was going to happen. We We just wouldn't let them do it. In these times in Jerusalem, nothing good happened after the sun went down. Good people closed their doors up, closed their windows up, and they huddled together in their homes, and only bad things went on out there in the dark. There were shepherds on the hills and so on, but in these towns, there were robbers around, that's when they were there, there was trouble, uh, and so on. But they closed up and it was dark, and Nicodemus was afraid, and therefore he goes during this time. Also, possibly he was ashamed to think that he, the teacher of the people, had to go, felt like he had to go to Jesus for something, to have something explained that maybe he didn't understand. He may have just felt some shame about that. If other people, aside from the Sanhedrin, saw him going, they'd wonder, what's wrong with him? Here's a man in need of a healer some sort, going to Jesus. The other possibility is you go at night. You certainly have the freedom at any point to turn around and go back, and nobody knows the difference. Nobody knows the difference. So he travels at night to see Jesus. And uh, I'd like, if I could have somebody, I'm going to flip over to the next one here. Uh, Can I have somebody read this? Sam, you want to read this one? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, just for the the sake of, um, sorry, we're going to move this around a little bit as we go. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Seemed to have maybe lost the bottom but maybe not. Okay, we'll find out. So Nicodemus starts off with what? Compliment. It's a great way to start off any confrontation, any difficult communication. You start off by buttering the person up. Tell them, I know you're a teacher from God. You couldn't do these things if you weren't coming from God. While in fact all of his buddies were saying he was doing these things through the devil. But he comes and says, I, I know you're doing uh, something good here. But Jesus doesn't fall for the tactic. He immediately goes on the offensive, and he makes it clear that that tactic isn't going to work, and he confronts him with the fact that no one, absolutely no one, will see the kingdom of God unless they are reborn. Now, is it possible? It's just, it just seems to be cut off at the bottom of the slide. Somehow, I think I had all the words actually in the slide, but no, no, we just have to go, go back. Sorry. Do you want the middle part? Yeah, it just seems like we need to get back to the words, but the words were at the bottom of the slide, and somehow they look like they've fallen off. Okay, so I'll I'll go ahead and... and uh, And read uh, what it says. It says, Jesus says, In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So Jesus comes back after Nicodemus tries the compliment approach, and he says to him, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, let me ask that in straight English. Who can see the kingdom of God. Only those who are born again. Can you see the kingdom of God if you're not born again? No. No. Can any of you see the kingdom? Can anyone, not just you, but anyone, see the kingdom of God if they have not been reborn? No one. Jesus makes that clear. Thanks, Justin, Hopefully the others will, will show up that way also. So Jesus makes this clear. So let's try the next slide, see if this one will work. Oh, and I should mention, this is a, this is a famous painting from a man by the name of Hendricks. Spells it in a very odd way. He was Dutch. Uh, but I, of all the pictures of Nicodemus, this is the one that I took to most because of this extreme difference between the dark that they were sitting in and the light, uh, and as you can see, not only outside but inside these homes, there's no light. It is dark. It's just dark. We've gotten used to having uh, electric lighting and so on. But the next uh, thing that that uh, uh, Nicodemus brings up, and Dave, could you uh, read that one? How can it- Okay, I won't even uh, try pulling that over in time. I'm going to have to be faster. I can see. But so so Nicodemus comes back with another answer. And in this case, I think he was giving Jesus a little bit of Jewish humor. You know, the Jews are known throughout history for dealing with much of their persecution by being funny. Okay, and Nicodemus, here he is, the Pharisee with a headdress. He's kind of being funny. Suggesting that Jesus means that he's going to have to go back into the mother's womb in order for this to happen. Now, I was trained in Cheltenham, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. I was trained by a gentleman by the name of Doctor Hummel in uh, human procreation, and he was assigned this job by the by the township school system to come to come and to speak to huge numbers, to speak to huge numbers of junior high school students, and to do it in a way where he never smirked. He never cracked a smile. He just went through teaching us all there was to know. Now, not only that, did I have that training, but I have been present at five births. My own, which I don't remember much about. <laughs> and four, four of my own children. Now, unlike my father, I did not drop my wife off at the hospital and go to work and say, give me a call when you find out what's happening. I actually went through four births. And I'll tell you, it was exhausting. But I never asked for drugs once. Mm-hmm. But it was a wonderful experience. It was a, you know, one that I will, I will never forget. But some of you, I realize, have never gone through that. So I just want to suggest, watch, call the midwife, and you will know that there ain't no going back. It's clear. This had to have been a joke. There's no, there is no going back. That's one of the things about childbirth. It's definitely a one, a one timer. So, um, so Jesus, you know, once again, uh, turns this away. Uh, he knows this is a joke, and Jesus answers. So, Tom, try this one. Now, I have to mention, over uh, the years, there's been a lot of debate over these words. And uh, there's been argument, particularly over the concept of the water and the spirit and what they referred to. Some people argue that water and spirit means the natural birth and the spiritual birth. Uh, Other people have argued that the water refers to baptism and therefore Possibly to be saved, you have to be baptized and then have this spiritual uh, awakening. Uh, Others that were more in the sphere of influence, maybe that I I spiritually grew up in, suggested that that was not the case. But baptism was still such a crucial part of our maturation uh, as Christians that that's why it was referred to here. And others uh, believed that, in fact, the idea of water and the spirit are essentially one thing, that throughout the Old Testament, water and the spirit are referred to together uh, in terms of cleansing and uh, renewal uh, as a picture of the coming kingdom uh, of God, so that people understood those things were, in fact, kind of one thing. Now, my purpose today, and I should, I should note, uh, Julie's actually written a paper on this subject, which she she provided to me and helped me understand what some of that debate was. And because Julie knows a lot about it, I'm not going to take her on in the discussion this morning. So instead, instead what I want to focus on is the fact that Jesus said, you must be born again. So we can argue over the water and the spirit together, separate and so on but the spiritual rebirth is clear that everyone must be born of the Spirit of God. No no ifs, ands, buts about it. Now, I, for instance, uh, am a first-generation Christian. My uh, spiritual birth uh, for me was uh, extremely clear. Uh, I was, uh, as a young young man... uh, You know, I came to a point of believing in Jesus Christ. And at that point, my life was essentially uh, changed forever. I uh, lay no claim uh, to, you know, having uh, reached any kind of perfection. But I remember in those days, uh, I wept in brokenness, uh, asking him to take over my life. And once again, for me, there was no going back. It impacted my relationship with my family and my friends. Uh, It impacted my uh, commitments of time. It impacted my career decisions. It impacted who I decided to marry. Uh, It impacted what we do with our money, how we raised our children, how we talk, how we feel about alcohol, what movies we watch. The change that came through Rebirth was a complete change of our lives. Uh, and I'm happy that there's no going back, but it was a complete change of my life. It was dramatic. It was total. It was rejected by many that I knew, but nonetheless, it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful change, and uh, the thing that it impacted least of all was how I spend my Sunday mornings. As I was going to church, anyway, without knowing anything, um, so that's the least part of being a, uh, a Christian, but it affected every other uh, area of my life, so I have one of the late Jess, can you read this one? So one of the big challenges in this issue about you must be born again is the fact that the passage of Christian faith from generation to generation or the Jewish faith from generation to generation is a struggle. It's a question. How do we do that? How do we bring that uh, about? Like I said, I'm a first-generation Christian. Many of you are, in fact, first-generation. Some of you are follow-on generation Christians. But we always see in the Old Testament scripture, the Jews get on fire, and then the Jews get a little less fire, and then the fire goes out, and then people start crying, and Jesus brings, or, you know, God brings the fire back again. And that seems to be like this historic flow of generation to generation. So the big critical thing for us is how we ensure that our next generations, our children, our, our grandchildren, uh, move on in God and become believers. But the reality is, let's face it, they have to be born again also. Every one of you that's a second generation Christian, you had to be born again also. And I recognize that for some of you, that rebirth was not tremendously dramatic. Some births are easier than others. I can tell by the four we had. Some were easy, some weren't so easy. I only passed out during a couple of them. You know. No, that's, that's not true. Uh, but for each of you, you must be born again also. And that means coming to this place of this spiritual uh, rebirth of recognizing Jesus and then going on and following him. And that uh, we, we read uh, several months ago about Samuel. The reality was Samuel served in the temple for years and never met God until the day God started calling him. And Eli, though not actually Samuel's parent, Eli was smart enough not to get in the way and to interfere, but to tell Samuel, go back in your room and listen to what God tells you and do what he says. And that is a key part of our, as we are Christian parents in working with our own children is encouraging them to go back in that private place and hear what God would say. And I want to encourage you to to encourage dialogue, encourage questions, encourage talk, even at your dinner table. If you can spend your dinner time talking about spiritual things and even stirring questions in your kids' minds, it will help. It will bring them to a place of asking, of seeking, and so on. And that's, ultimately, they have to find the Lord uh, on their own. They have to come into contact uh, with him. The scripture tells us in John 1, verse 6, it says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of human or natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. That's what every second and third and fourth generation needs to remember. That's where they are reborn, in God, not in their parents and so on. And that is a critical thing, though. For those of you who are second and third generation, and you've come to believe that is such a wonderful thing, you've probably missed lots of the heartache that many of us had, but I still believe you probably went through your own challenges, your own questions, uh, and so on. And in the end, you've come to that point of trusting. And like I said, it may not have been demonstrative, You're coming to believe, but the scripture here tells us very clearly, this spiritual act, it is hard to see, to know how it happens. That's not our business. Our business isn't to create, okay, here are the very steps you have to go through in order to get saved the reality is you may not have the sense of, well, this is the exact day I came to believe. That's okay. That's okay. Now, some of you may ask, well, how can I be born again? First of all, it's important to understand there is no activity formula for being reborn. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. And Paul said in Romans chapter 10, he says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But neither of these things are legal actions. It's not like if I sign this paper, I get saved. They involve something internal, something involving believing, uh, not not outward actions. Jeremiah said, that you will find him when you search with all your heart. That's how we find God. Now, I think that's because as we're searching with all our heart, maybe we're ready to have him then come and talk to us, and he finds us. Uh, he finds us. But the interesting thing here is here's a, we're going to take one more step here. Once again, the ongoing conversation. needs somebody who can read a short line. Thank you. So, Nicodemus doesn't give up the argument. It's like he's come asking questions, but everything Jesus says, he comes back with kind of not really to the point arguments. But it is important to understand that the Jews associated the end of the age coming of the kingdom of God and the Jews' entry into their eternal birthright. So when Jesus starts talking about seeing the kingdom of God and saying, you're not going to see it unless this happens, this rebirth, it was a direct confrontation to the sense of birthright that the Jewish people had. I mean, they traced their lineage back to Abraham, who they never questioned about the reality that he didn't get his from his father. He came to, Jesus, or he came to God through faith but they sensed that this was their natural birthright through Abraham. Now, some assumed that this coming kingdom was going to be a political kingdom, but still that they were then going to enter into that political overlordship by their birthright. Others assumed it was going to be spiritual, but once again, coming into it by their birthright. The Pharisees, Nicodemus' own group, however, placed even greater hope in the fact that the law that the Jews were told to follow wasn't all that clear. And therefore, they spent all their time figuring out all the details. And since they had the details, they became the experts, they became the guides, and therefore, clearly, through following all of that, they were going to see the coming kingdom when it came. So Jesus telling him, that this was not going to happen without being reborn, was a confrontation of everything they were doing. And that he, also, without rebirth, was not going to enter into the kingdom. Okay, here's a little bit longer one. Uh, Rich, do you want to try this? So Jesus makes clear here that the next step, that everything about this new birth is about linking yourself to the Son of Man, who is prophesied in the Scripture, uh, linking yourself to the Son of God, and in fact, Jesus himself. Now, who knows, uh, the last half of this, who knows the story of this part about Moses and the snake? Anybody? Uh? Yes, sir. Can you tell us what that was about? Not well. okay. <laughs> okay, let me ask somebody else. Okay, wrong story, well. sorry. <laughs> okay, <laughs> next story. Uh, <laughs> Steve. What? I'm sorry, Barbara, I'll go with Barbara. Very, very, very close. They were, they were doing what they do best. They were complaining in the wilderness. You know. They were complaining about what was happening. And God sent snakes after them that were biting them. It's poisonous snakes biting the people. And the people were dying. And uh, God told Moses to take a bronze figure of one of these snakes, put it on a pole, and hold it up. And when everybody who got bit would look at the pole they would be healed. Now, I have to believe that when Jesus spoke this to Nicodemus, he knew that Nicodemus understood the story and that somehow, oddly enough, it was a messianic prophecy. I mean, that's the nature of how these people study things. They somehow got the idea. I would never have gotten that. When I read that story in Numbers, I would have thought, what does this have to do with anything? Why would God set snakes on them? Snakes are a symbol of the devil in the, in the garden. And then to put the snake up on the pole? I mean, what an odd story. But this is a story, prophetic story, of the coming Christ. Now, when I was a new believer in a charismatic church, we used to sing a song called Lift Jesus Higher. you ever hear that? Lift Jesus higher, lift Jesus higher, lift him up for the world to see. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And we were able to sing that song, dancing around with our hands up, praising God, saying, we're lifting Jesus higher, When, in fact, the real image is we're all parading around, lifting him up on the cross. That's the picture. You know, I never thought about it when I was singing that song, that we're all, all, you know, dancing around. Some of us were falling down. Some of us were doing whatever. But we're holding Jesus up on the cross. And that's the symbol. Later, this is brought up again by Jesus, where he actually says those words, if I be lifted up. I will draw on me. John specifically mentions he was speaking of the coming crucifixion. So, this is the end of the story. Jesus says, tells him this story about Moses. He said, if you know if the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And Nicodemus looks at him. There's no more questions. And as far as we know, that night, Nicodemus probably snuck home through the dark, back to wherever he came from. Now, at that point in the writing, John takes over. John the writer takes over, no longer mentioning Jesus' words. So, Bill, could you read this, this part? So John takes the story of Nicodemus and he sums up the ending, doesn't say, and Nicodemus walked away, but he sums it up by saying one of the portions of scripture that most of us know, most of us love, about how God so loved the world that he gave his son for us. And whosoever believes in him would have eternal life. I've got a picture here by Frau Angelica uh, of the crucifixion of Jesus being lifted up but John summarizes the discussion dealing with Nicodemus and he says it in this way then he goes on uh, can I have one more Carolyn would you like to read can you read this one So, once again, we started, we started with darkness, and the story ends with the story of light that the Lord desires for all things to be brought out into the light, not to be hidden, but to bring out the truth, and that he was, in fact, the light that would expose all these deeds uh, and so on. And this part of the scripture is not the last we hear of Nicodemus. Later, as Jesus has gotten closer to the end, the Sanhedrin gets together and they start debating what they're going to do. Uh, They're wanting to know why the the soldiers have not arrested Jesus. They're wanting to know what to do. And Nicodemus, it's again someone who started out in fear and shame and hiding. Nicodemus steps up in the middle of the Sanhedrin and says, first of all, well, doesn't the law require that you know, the accused have certain rights? And shouldn't we follow that? So something's happening. Something's happening at that point in Nicodemus' life. We don't know for sure, but at least he's stepping up to say something needs to be done correctly here. A short while later, interestingly enough, After Jesus is crucified, Joseph of Arimathea, who we know is involved with getting Jesus the tomb, and Nicodemus, help bring Jesus' body to the tomb. And there's a number of of great art pieces. This is one by Michelangelo that's unfinished. Most of you have seen the thing that most people refer to as Michelangelo's Pieta. It's very smooth. Jesus' body is stretched out on his mother's lap. This is one that he worked on, did not finish. Interestingly enough, some people thought it was worth trying to finish, and the the character added on the left there was actually done, they think, by somebody else. Uh, But Michelangelo did this, and the big man standing in the back is Nicodemus. And the the really fascinating thing to me is that the face on the statue of Nicodemus is actually Michelangelo's. So, in some way, he was saying, through this statue, that he sensed himself like Nicodemus looking for the truth. And I believe, I would hope, by the work that he's done here, having found the truth. But for all of us, it's clear that we must be born again. The moving of the Spirit in that, bringing that about, is not something that you can see. It's not something that can be turned into a routine, saying if you pray these steps, you get in You know, it's not that kind of thing. But ultimately, rebirth comes about through believing in Jesus. He was the master of the rebirth. He was what it was all about. And if he be lifted up, he would draw all men unto him. Father, we thank you uh, today for your rebirth. I thank you for uh, its work in my own life and the lives of my family members my friends, my church. Uh, Father, I pray that you would continue your great work uh, in creation to uh, to bring people to you. I pray today, Lord, that if there are any that do not know you, Lord, that you would speak to them directly, that you would talk to them, that you would call upon them, and that they would say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us all in our walk uh, to follow that rebirth, to follow that new life, and, Lord, to draw, draw close to you. We ask this in Jesus' name.
0: more about our church visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on facebook slash MD. be sure to subscribe to our podcast in itunes music kindly provided by the least of these thanks again for listening and god bless